Only the finest for Ohio's finest right here. Oh, San Pellegrinito. Un Pellegrinito, si. How's it going, bro? So what's what's up with you? What are you what are you doing over there? When are you gonna stop working with clients and come over here, hang out with me, bro? You're in uh where are you right now? Tampa. Tampa? Yeah. Okay. Okay. I honestly I've never been to Tampa. I have no it's idea. Boring, bro. There's nothing to do here. <laughs> All we got is uh Lane Norton over here. That's it. <laughs> oh boy. It's hilarious because if you were on this right now, there are probably a million questions and topics we're gonna talk about. We'd be like, there's no evidence to support that. <laughs> the meta analyses show. Yeah, that's how it is, man. That's what I hear all the fucking time. It's great to see you, handsome. Looking you too, bro. Hand- looking handsomer than ever. I like the beard. It's it's halfway to a respectable beard. Like, this is thick here, but I just can't. On this side, it's decent, but I just can't get it to, to fill out. I mean, you see those two little patchy spots right there. You, have you ever tried minoxidil on there? So I've done it a couple times. I've never habitually committed to it. Have you have you heard of anybody having like any skin breakouts with minoxidil or is that usually a non-issue? No, it is. It's with the polyethylene glycol version and um, they use it as like a excipient to deliver it inside the skin, but then it irritates the skin. And so people get um, side effects from it. So yeah, it's possible. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's the, re- I've never looked into it, but that's the reason why I've always been hesitant to do it. Cause like my skin's been so clear since mm-hmm. cleaning up my diet and changing what soaps I use and all that sort of stuff. And I just wanted to keep it that way. So I put like, like rosemary oil is like the extent of what I put okay. on my, on my beard and then nothing else. But yeah, I mean, you guys can't see this right now cause we only have the audio going for this podcast, but Pedro has a great beard. Mine is very mediocre, and it's and it's looking like it's going to stay that way for now. So, you know, I I didn't actually used to have this beard until I started uh looking for ways to increase DHT. But then the consequence is I went bald. <laughs> so you got no hair on your fucking yes, head. Exactly. <laughs> the DHT giveth and the DHT taketh, taketh. away. Yeah. Oh man, I saw an account on Instagram recently where this guy is like. He's like pretty much bald and I feel for the guy cause like it's working, but still it's like, he's, he's just like doing everything except a transplant. He's like taking thin minoxidil, derma rolling oils, everything. And he did like a before and after. And it was like, just like baby strands growing. Like it looks like you've just in, reinvigorated like your lawn to grow, but it's dead. And it's just like, all right, you're, you're past the point of return brother, but you know, good for you, I guess. Yeah. There's not much you can do. I tried most stuff and it's just not happening. Yeah. Yeah, no, for me it's like my my hairline is really what's uh what's going these days. I have like recession on the left side and then like diffuse thinning on the right side. And it's 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 holding up not terribly, but just looking at my entire family, every male is bald. Like I know that it's coming for me and the only reason I've likely been able to delay it is I'm just way healthier than any other male in, in my family, you know? Right. So, yeah. But the re- the reaper will come eventually. So Yeah. All right. I'm gonna I'm gonna do the little intro here. I'm gonna keep in this this beginning part because it's so it's so easy for us to talk. People don't know, but we're you know, we're we're good friends and we we connect on a lot of levels, so it's it's pretty easy to keep this going without a formula. But what is going on, ladies and gentlemen? Welcome to episode 15 
no, episode 16, I'm sorry, episode 16 of the High Bar Podcast. With me today, I have my buddy Pedro Amaral. Instagram account is Thucydides. We'll be putting that in the description for this episode. Um, good friend of mine who I met only through the internet. We've met in person once, had a jolly old time. Um, hoping that you'll you'll make it down from Tampa to uh, Miami at some point this year. But um, Pedro, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself just because a lot of people listening, you know, a lot of the people probably tuning in specifically for this follow you, but a lot of people who are in my, you know, powerlifting following might not be familiar with you. So I'll hand it over to you, man. Yeah. So I started in the health and fitness industry. Like most people, I started as a trainer. I uh, gotten um, the RPE side of things with a periodization, Renaissance periodization as a company, I think is what they call yeah. themselves. Then I, I started realizing that my health was taking a pretty negative turn. A lot of things happened in between with uh, the health of my family, the pets that I had, and uh, I got into medicine and I finished a biomedicine, biomedical biotechnology degree. And now I'm doing a chemistry and math dual degree. Um, all three were bachelors and then a minors in physics as well. Dude. So I'm going to ask you some questions about your academic career as, as we go through this, but that's crazy, man. Like I see for those of you who don't follow, like if you watch any of Pedro's stories, seeing a lot of like the pure chemistry or pure math stuff, it like gives me flashbacks to what I've seen, like, you know, friends or fraternity brothers working on in, in school. And um, I guess like my my first question for you is like, and, and I can, I'm granted you're still in education and I'm not, but I very much get the feeling now being 26 going on 27, where I'm like, I feel like if you put me back in a formal curriculum, I could handle it and learn information so much better than when I was an 18 to 22 year old kid. So I wanted to ask you like what it's been like kind of having this, this 180 of, cause I know that you and I spoke about it in person. I think it was when we went out to uh, sushi the one time you were here, but what has it been like, you know, doing that 180 of like not necessarily prioritizing education very young, and then just being like all in, ready to soak things up. And at this point, obviously doing a dual degree in, you know, chemistry and math is is very demanding. What has that been like for you? Yeah, man, it's very interesting because most of my life, I felt like I was left behind. I would see people that were younger than me and farther than me in their life. People making $100,000 at 22 years old while I was being a loser skateboarding at the around the same age. So I... I guess what changed it for me was when my dog and my cat, they both uh, got pretty sick and my dog got sick for a good three years. He, would ha he had refractory Lyme disease and there was nothing that we could do for him. And I just watched them deteriorate and that flipped a switch in me and realizing what's important in life and our health is the most important thing. Without our health, we can't do anything. And witnessing that really changed my gears. I started realizing that if I don't change things about my life, and the way I'm doing things, I was going to one, become a loser, and then two, have no meaning in my life. And it, the only meaning I got was from trying to help my dog get better. And that's what brought me into medicine. And at first, I was afraid because I wasn't good at academics. I failed geometry in sophomore year of high school. I dropped out of pre-calculus in college. I barely passed college algebra. And uh, a lot of what was necessary for biomedical science was statistics. So I was pretty uh, shook when I started my first real degree in biomedical sciences, um, but I quickly realized that the limitations that I once had 
were because I never applied myself. And I realized, boy, this stuff is actually not that bad. I'm kind of intelligent enough to grasp it. And I got um, absorbed into the material and I wanted to learn everything. And then that's how I started doing really good in school because one particular moment that comes up for me is organic chemistry. During those uh, six months of doing Orgo 1 and Orgo 2, I would sit down and read all of the chapters in the book and really try to grasp the mechanisms by which reactions happen. And I passed a class with a weighted average of like 95, where while most of my classmates were really struggling with that class, it was probably one of the easiest classes for me. And that's one of the deal breakers for a lot of people. Yeah. And I credit that only to being so absorbed into the material to feel like, oh, I know why this is important. I know how this translates to things like nutrition. And now doing mathematics out of all things, I would always um, say I never want to do more math than I have to do. And if that, that for me was college algebra and statistics, but then as soon as I did my first physics class, that changed because I seen how applicable physics is to biological systems. And that's when I was like, okay, I know I have to do this. When I was deciding on whether to do like a PhD in molecular bio or go for mathematics and a degree in physics, I was very unsure at the moment because I had professors saying, hey, you're going to waste your time. You should do the PhD. Don't do a second degree. But I realized I would never fully understand things if I did the PhD, like multivariate analysis in, in uh, biological models, like clinical trials use that for determining if something causes something else. And yep. I, I didn't get information on that in the biomedical sciences degree. I had to learn that on my own. And uh, that's what made me realize if I don't do the math degree, I would never be a really good, true scientist. Yeah. Dude, that's amazing, man. And it's so... It's so... What's the word I'm looking for here? Honestly, it's like it makes you wonder how many people just circumstantially at, you know, during those key years of development either are left behind or feel like they're left behind and never have some sort of pivotal moment in their life that turns that switch on. Because just seeing the stuff that you post, hearing how you think, and then obviously being friends with you and being able to discuss a lot of this stuff in detail you would never you would never in a million years imagine that you were ever in a position to be struggling academically or having difficulty grasping and having command of certain materials so it's like you know it's it's very inspiring to hear how that change came about albeit you know from a stressful and and you know yeah. traumatic experience and and it's it seems to be the case that a lot of those situations need to precede some sort of major change or growth that yeah. that gears you a, st a step in the right direction but um yeah man that's that's amazing to hear and it is it is funny that you say that because i feel like um you know with with your mention of biology and needing an understanding of math it's always so interesting to me when i meet people who you know like in in my undergrad for example like everyone at, at mit is like a whiz at math right like in the the necessity to take math heavy courses is, is there like everyone's always taking math classes even you know people who are bio majors but whenever i meet people who just are from you know other other universities and a lot of them talk about having been bio majors so many of them will say something along the lines of like i'm a bio major and then you get to talking about academics more and they're like oh yeah i'm not good at math or i was never good at math or i don't take math classes and it's like if you're going to be practicing biology in any real life situation whether it's like 
bioinformatics, biotech, any sort of statistical analysis, if you're actually a scientist doing clinical trials and have to do some sort of, you know, you know, causative tests, like, you know, uh, you know, what is it? All the different statistical tests, ANOVA, you know, T-tests, whatever it is. It's like, you need to, you need to have a command of different, multiple different types of math. And it's just funny that there are so many people who consider them to be uh, you know, mutually exclusive or not necessary to overlap when it's like all of this is, is so yep. necessary. It's so in the MIT, they essentially, uh, they want to push students towards becoming more math dominant in a sense, even though they bridge out to fields like biology, right? Because in my college that I'm in right now, that is not the case. They essentially yeah. get the course done, never have to worry about it again. Yeah. So the way that MIT's course load is set up, so there's you know, with every major, obviously you have your, your different curriculums or curricula, but there's a set of like general institute requirements. So like every student has to take a uh, single variable and multivariable calc. Um, if you've gotten, uh, like if you got a, a five on AP Calc BC, you don't have to take single variable calc and you could just take multivariable as your first class of calc. Um, and then you have to take uh, either differential equations or linear algebra. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of times, like if you're, a, I mean, a lot of people will end up taking both depending on what their major is. But if you're like a, you know, a, a chemical engineer or a mechanical engineer, the one of those two that are mandatory is diff EQ. Right. Um, but if you're like a computer scientist, you might never have to take diff EQ, but you have to take linear algebra. Um, but a lot of the times people are taking both. And then, like I said, you're already taking calc as well. And, you know, for the kids who are, you know, true biology majors with the goal of going pre-med, maybe they will never take any other, you know, high level math classes, but a lot of majors and a lot of, you know, concentrations within majors are going to require some sort of, sort of statistic classes or probability classes or, you know, whatever it is. So everything is, is pretty math heavy. Um, you know, kind of as it should be, I think even if you're not directly doing any sort of math, I think ju that just having that, um, demand on you to think in that way is just so important, yeah. right? Like if all you're ever doing is just, you know, recall and even application of things in a non-mathematical way, I think you just, you don't stay as sharp, I feel like. And, yeah. and I definitely feel that in, in some ways, you know now just not um being actively in any classes like i remember so it was unfortunate because it was my senior year of college i took probability and random variables and it was my favorite class i've ever taken in school like it was my senior spring so it was my last semester of school and it was my favorite class i had ever taken and when i got a really solid command of it like when you know i took my first two exams and like aced both of them when i was able to understand probability the way that I did, I felt like I unlocked a completely new way of thinking that I never had beforehand. Mm -hmm. And it was so upsetting when the semester ended and I'm like, well, I'm never, I, I mean, I could explore it on my own, right? But there's now no like formal organized impetus for me to actually think and problem solve in this way anymore. And yeah. it was like, of course I found this at the end of my, of my college, yeah. you know, career it's a four thousand level course right it's like one of the top um statistic courses that most people take probability theory um i mean it's i don't know how things are formatted like at at other 
universities, but like it was just like a no prerequisite like uh, intro see. level probability class. So okay. like, yeah. I mean, I'm sure it was you know compared to other schools like might have been on on par with maybe some higher level probability courses that are offered. Um, but there are so many different classes past that. Like if you wanted to take probability, this was like the first course that you would take where right. the only prereqs were like, you know, the multivariable calc such that, you know, just to prove that like you had basically made it past your freshman year. Like unless you had taken that class, like you probably wouldn't be able to get in unless you, um, you know, got some sort of like pr professor permission or something like that. But um, no, I mean, it was a really interesting class and it was like I said, something that I wish that I uh, had figured out earlier, but the joke that people say about, about MIT is it's like trying to drink from a fire hydrant where it's just like very high pressure, very overwhelming. And that's, I guess, what prevented me from ever finding that was like, there's just so much stuff that I'm like, fuck, I have to get this done. So you don't ever have the time to be like, oh, what do I actually like? You know I what see. I mean? That that is a very uh, disappointing thing to hear, though, because MIT has so many opportunities. If they mm -hmm. at least kind of directed the students better, maybe that would be really useful for people like yourself. You have clearly you have an innate talent for not only powerlifting but academics. You're able to transition fields from mechanical engineering to biology really effortlessly, from what I understood. And it doesn't take much for you to understand concepts. You get you get it like this. So imagine if they at least catered to you a little bit more and directed you towards things that you were interested in. I remember uh, you did mouse research on a brain or cancer, or was it Huntington's disease? So I did, I did Huntington's disease research while I was in school. Um, one of the guys, funny enough, one of the guys that I coached for powerlifting, because there was like a whole group of us at MIT that powerlifted. One of the guys that I coached was a postdoc in the Huntington's disease lab mm -hmm. at the, uh, the Koch Institute. So I started working, you know, in his lab and we were doing um, Huntington's disease research. The, the lab was specifically looking at, you know, the, the correlation between the number of CAG repeats yeah. and the severity of the disease. Um, I don't know how familiar you are with Huntington's disease. I assume that sure I, I don't think anybody so. listening to this or most people listening probably aren't familiar, um, but uh, that's what I did my, my senior fall. And then after I graduated, I worked with mice, um, studying organic acid diseases, the or mm -hmm. organic acidemias. Yeah. And, and you liked it. That's what I'm trying to get at. This is you, you had a really good understanding of math. You were good under pressure and you liked what you learned in biology clearly because you made the switch, but you never went through it. I'm assuming because you still had that pressure from MIT that if you were to do a master's or a PhD, it would have been just as overwhelming, if not more. So for me, and to go back to what you were saying before, the way that I would, and I've had this conversation with kids I went to MIT with, it's like MIT is fantastic if you already know exactly what you want to do in life, mm -hmm. which is very difficult to be at that point as a teenager, right? So if you come in MIT having been coding since you were 12, 13 years old, or maybe you know you wanted to be pre-med since high school, then you have a perfect track paved out for you. You know exactly which inner circles you're going to join, you know where you're going to be networking. But if you're like a lot of kids and you're coming in kind of with an open mind, hoping to be directed toward what you're passionate about, it's very difficult to find that because just the course rigor is so high that a lot of times you're not going to have the opportunity to explore. 
and I actually did a um, a YouTube video about my undergrad experience and like my biggest regret slash piece of advice that I gave was like spend or try to if you go to like a higher you know a higher learning institution like exploit the resources and networks available to you as much as possible because you know while it is important to get good grades and you should absolutely not slack off you know if you're so stressed and fixated on like the classroom setting and you're not taking advantage of the labs at your disposal or the people at your disposal like you are missing out on the biggest part really of what you're paying for there because the education is not what you're really paying for or like what you should be thinking what you're paying for because you could learn all of that shit for free you could go on like you're doing it right now with open courseware mit's ocw like pretty much all the information you could learn in an undergraduate career you can learn on the internet for free and there are many sites that consolidate it and organize it for you like an undergraduate curriculum but you won't have access to the millions of dollars of equipment you won't have the ability to just find a oh i need to talk to this person and ask them their opinion about pneumatics or i need to ask this person their opinion about organic chemistry it's like you're never going to have those opportunities again and that's what you need to take um advantage of and that's like i didn't really get the opportunity to do that because i didn't know too well what i wanted to do um you had to after your freshman year declare your major um which i think is pretty normal but like when your freshman year is just riddled with like the general institute requirements so you're taking you know physics one and two you're taking chem you're taking diff eq you're taking multivariable it's like okay i'm i'm pretty much taking a beefed up like high school curriculum right now right like it's not gearing me toward anything specific and i knew i didn't want to code so i was like oh mechanical engineering is like broad enough i'll do that and you know i made it through most of the curriculum and then realized like okay this isn't this isn't for me um and then i decided to shift to to pre-med and you know, I would say that I enjoyed like the the mouse work. I really enjoyed anything chemistry or biochemistry. Um, but just in terms of like my future desires or job prospects, like going into academia and research just never appealed to me. Um, it's just never been something that I've seen myself being able to enjoy or, or even thrive at per, pro- probably because I wouldn't enjoy it, right? It's just difficult to you know, there's a quote from uh, actually he used to be a power lifter. Um, he's kind of pivoted more recently. He, he just coaches people, um, you know, bodybuilding, powerlifting and lifestyle now, but in a more casual way. His name's Ryan Doris. Some people listening to this are probably familiar with him because he used to be a pretty good power lifter, um, like actually very high level from like 2013 to 2015 or 16 was the last year he competed. And he was like, you know, never, never fake your passion in something because someone who is actually passionate about what you're pretending to be passionate about will absolutely embarrass you at it yeah, when they come along. And like, that's, that's kind of the mindset that I had with, with, you know, finding my way and looking at all of these different paths I could have taken while I was a student, because I was like, I can't, I can't fake this. Like I, I'm going to, you know, grit my teeth and pretend that I enjoy this. And the people who just love it are going to fucking smoke me at it. Cause I couldn't really care past any sort of, you know, surface level, um, yeah. you know, enjoyment. So yeah, the, the higher, the higher degrees never, never really appealed to me past like the MD route. Um, but you know, again, this, this podcast more about you, but, and, and we can, you know, talk about this 
in, you know, later, but in, in short, the reason I didn't go the MD route was because of powerlifting coaching. Like it was just legitimately a more enjoyable. And when I really thought about the timeline, a more lucrative option for me. Right. So it, it just kind of seemed like a no brainer in that regard. Yeah. But I think not even if it was revolving around your experience, I wanted to ask, ask about this in particular, because one, I'm surprised at your path, the path that you've taken, considering you were doing really good in MIT with medicine and so on. And then I understand though, from your perspective of powerlifting, look at what the things that you've done and how you were able to compete at such a high level. Um, and then the second is I'm sure it's going to help somebody because most people go through a similar experience where, where they just don't know what to do with their life in college. And that was yeah. me for two years when I first did um, the first two years of college. I switched so many majors because I just didn't know. Yeah. Yeah. How old are you now? I totally forget. 28. 28. Okay. Yeah. How is so I always, I always see your stories about like, you know, professors thinking that you have like you secretly have like a, a higher degree than you actually do. <laughs> Because of the way that you answer questions or the topics that you bring up, how do your classmates respond that they're like, you know, several years younger and probably are just like doing the bare minimum to get by? Like, they're like, who's this fucking tryhard here? You know, speaking off of niacin. They never look at me, first of all. They they just kind of look, when I ask questions, it's usually more in-depth questions because if it's surface level, I'm just not going to bother the professor. But if it has an applicability, like with uh, vectors and matrices, for example, I'll ask about um, applications to other fields. And I see like from the corner of my eyes, the students looking at me like, what is wrong with this dude? Like, why is he asking this question? Why does he have a bald head? Why is he such a, a young amount of students around him in college? They all look at me like I'm just a supervisor in their class or something. Yeah. It's like that Steve Buscemi meme. It's like, how do you do fellow, like fellow uh, teenagers or fellow kids, whatever it is? Yeah. Do you do you ever have uh, do you ever have moments where your professors are just like completely taken aback and they just don't have an answer for you? Yeah, plenty of times this happens, and they're like, um, "I'll see what I can find in relation to this," or "I just don't know." And that's yeah. when they give the spiel about, "Hey, it's okay to not know something, um, even as a professor." But yeah, it's often because I really want to understand the why of different things. Why are things the way that they are? Not just, "Oh, okay, this is the fact." research behind it okay we'll we'll grant that as true yeah yeah no that's cool man i'm i'm really excited for you um just because i think that you know you're as much as you enjoy this this academic process i'm excited for you to like kind of be on cruise control with how manageable your course load is and just be in a position where you can start to be the the public informant at the level that I know you can be and I know the mm -hmm. level that you want to be because I know it matters to you how much you can help other people yeah. learn um which really brings me to the 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 main set of questions or topics that you know I wanted to have you on here for which is just you know you mentioned earlier and and I think a lot of people following me now know that like the prioritization of health has has taken major precedent in my life and not just from the you know performance perspective as a lifter it's like i've tried to do a lot to educate people um as best as i can on how to lead healthier lives and a lot of that inspiration and learning has come from conversations with people like you so you know in terms of i guess like dietary circumstances and environmental circumstances like what do you see as 
you know, the biggest threats to, you know, our generation and the younger generations. And, you know, for people listening who are presumably all like late teenagers, early 20s, you know, probably lifting weights and trying to get stronger, but also, you know, maybe falling victim sometimes to a lot of just the normal societal uh, vices or, or um, you know, just negative externalities. Like what, what do you think are the, the threats that are, are posed to us today? You know, I, usually I would say things like environmental pollutants are a big one, which they are. They contribute to so many different conditions that most people don't even know, um, especially heart disease, funny enough. But after you just said external events that might influence a person in a negative way in their early teen or their late teens, early 20s, I actually thought about something different. And that would actually be not understanding the role that certain infectious diseases can actually have on psychology. There are a lot of correlations between, for example, chronic UTIs and schizophrenia. There are correlations with certain viral infections like herpes infections and OCD-like symptoms. And I know a lot of people in the lifting sphere do have these um, sort of psycho negative psychological conditions that are never fully diagnosed as such. They don't go to their doctor and, and say, hey, look, I have some weird ruminating thoughts in my head. I think I might have OCD. They don't even consider that a condition. Instead, they just kind of go through life until it gets progressively worse and they, they feel like something just might has to be wrong with their brain. When in reality, it could have been infectious diseases that are affecting their uh, neurology and neurophysiology. And in turn, that's always going to influence everything else in life. Um, one of the reasons I also mentioned this is because as you're, when you're younger, you're going to have more sexual activity. But it is so common for people to get asymptomatic chlamydia, and then it affects their nervous system. And one of the manifestations may be psychological conditions. So in this case, yeah, obviously food, water, and environments are big. But I do think one of the ones that are more recent, in my opinion, that are important are infectious diseases. Really? Wow. I've, I, <laughs> I had no idea. That's actually insane. I, wow. I'm like, I'm like still absorbing that. That's interesting. You're going to have to send me some stuff on that. Sure. And I'm probably going to have to, uh, if you, whatever you send me, I'll probably post on my story after people go through listening to this and have the similar kind of shocked reaction to that. But that's, that's crazy, man. Cause like, you know, along that same vein, and this is, I guess, kind of the direction I thought you were going in was like just the, the mental health aspect in general. Um, and obviously there's, you know, um, you know, a lot of like potential biochemical influences on why people, you know, psychologically view themselves a certain way or engage in certain behaviors. But like so many people that I know within the powerlifting community, and a lot of this we know is like, you know, habit based and behavior based, but like, they are depressed, or they're anxious, or, you know, they are, you know, uh, often subject to their their vices um, and don't really feel like they have a strong like internal locus of control. Um, and, you know, you see like the typical stuff. And I think that it's good that it's become more popular where people are like, hey, like you, you know, try to get enough sleep, like go outside, see the sun, like get the fuck off your phone, like, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. stop having, you know, frivolous, uh, you know, sexual partners and all that sort of stuff. But along the same vein of what you were talking about, like when it comes to depression and anxiety and all of that stuff outside of the behavioral stuff, have there been any sort of 
interesting findings that you've seen in regards to stuff like infectious disease or in regards to, you know, dietary influences that yeah. impact stuff like that? There's one that is more recent in relation to infectious diseases. And then one diet I'll bring up right after just to maintain like the dietary aspect of the podcast. But one of the ones that has always been discussed as a contributor to many neurological diseases is Epstein-Barr virus. And it's only been more recently that there's this huge observational analysis where they really confirmed with such high significance value. It's very, very hard to deny uh, the difference between like the control group that had no um, Epstein-Barr virus and the, the groups that had Epstein-Barr virus infection, those people were the highest as, at risk for multiple sclerosis. And it is not the first time that this has been discussed. And it was just validated probably a week ago with another study that came out um, essentially saying the same thing. And Epstein-Barr virus is an infection 95% of the population gets um, no matter what they do. And it's mostly transmitted through sexual activity. Even kissing does it. Um, so most people are going to have it and it's not just multiple sclerosis that it's associated with it's depression, anxiety, panic disorders out of nowhere, out of the blue, where people are completely normal until they hit whatever age, 19, 20, 21, when they get Epstein-Barr virus for the first time and they have one stressful event and then they develop this panic disorder that otherwise wasn't present. And they'll tell you in their health history, I've never had anxiety. I've never had panic disorders, but then this one thing happened. And I've never been able to overcome it since. It's such a under-discussed topic in relation to psychological diseases is the influence of these infectious agents. Um, and then in terms of like a dietary aspect in, in relation to uh, psychoneurological health, there are definitely evident or pieces of research suggesting that um, certain carbohydrates within uh, foods and how they act and they interact with our immune system within the gut trigger an entire cascade that overwhelms the nervous system, goes through the vagus nerve and causes neuroinflammation. And a consequence of that is people start to get these weird symptoms of depression out of nowhere following dietary intakes that they can't correlate one to one with like, oh, this food causes this because they're just consuming a variety of different foods. Yeah. Um, and it, it's so under noticed for a long period of time that it inevitably, inevitably becomes a chronic condition and they're unable to identify what food triggers that contain these certain carbohydrates are the things that cause their neuropsychological conditions. Lectins, for example, are one of them. And it's very obvious that they do affect a lot of people in this way. It's not bad for everybody, but there's definitely evidence that they, they do cause detrimental uh, neurological deficits in a lot of people. So just for, just for the audience, just, just give a summary of like what foods are lectin containing just for those who may be yeah, beans would be probably the biggest one that I can think of. Um, what else? Legumes in general would contain lectin and nuts. Yeah. Nuts as well. And the, the lectins, they, what they do is they bind to lectin binding domain and immune cells. So immune cells have this domain where they recognize these lectin molecules in the first place. Um, and it triggers an inflammatory cascade by the immune system. They're like, Oh, that thing is here again. We're going to have to activate the pro-inflammatory cascade. And in some people, it can be um, low enough that it's not detectable by blood tests, for example, but strong enough of an effect in terms of the secondary signals within cells that it completely alters their physiology. And so they feel a lot crappier, brain fog kicks in, things like that. And yeah. I'm sure you've experienced that because you can't eat um, beans without having some kind of symptoms, right? 
Yeah. So that's, that was going to be the next question that I asked you and just a lead in here. Cause like, I want to, what I want to say here and, and, and a big part of why I wanted to have you on this podcast, right. Is that a lot of the opinions that you and I hold and they can be dietary related, they can be politically related, right. A lot of what the people who oppose our ways of thinking do is they'll prop up the most batshit insane and not intelligent or articulate person who maybe overlaps with what we talk about to some degree, right? And you use that type of person to discredit a lot of what people talk about. And usually it's because they have other insane things that they're saying in conjunction with what they're saying that might be true, um, or they're just like very dogmatic about it, right? But I try to be um, both articulate and qualifying with my statements, and I know that you do the same thing. So when you talk about something like lectins being, you know, harmful for some people, we're not trying to say that they are universally bad. And one of the questions that someone asked me on my on my Q&A that I put up about having you on here is like, you know, talking about, you know, Saladino basically being like, oh, all vegetables are bad. And like, mm-hmm. you've made a post actually a really helpful one about that not being the case. And the answer being more, it depends, right? So um, in my own experience, right, with lectins, like, I get very bloated. I have stomach pains from them. Um, and then there are also like certain vegetables that you and I have spoken about that I can't eat. Uh, I can't yeah. eat xanthan gum either. So like if there's ice creams or sauces that have xanthan gum in them, that triggers very, very strong stomach pains for me. Um, so I wanted to ask like with, with something like lectins, you know, what signs could someone be looking for? Right. Because like you said, some people can be totally fine. Maybe some people aren't fine and they're asymptomatic. And then there are some people who aren't fine and are symptomatic. So what are some symptoms or things that people can be looking at to determine not just with lectins, but like, you know, some people have issues with leafy greens like I do, or some people have issues with nightshade vegetables like I do. So what, what can people look for in those situations to determine if maybe they should avoid it or maybe it's, you know, okay for them? Yeah, just to give a quick contrast, I'm somebody that does completely fine with most lectin-containing foods. I can eat nuts and legumes as well as as long as they're cooked without any problem. Um, but then, yeah, like what you mentioned, you're affected by them. So just to give a contrast, not everybody will have the same response to the different foods. But we shouldn't be dismissive of the people that do have a negative response um, and identify them with the people that are promoting this in a, an exaggerated light. There's a lot of science to support the anti-nutrient-based argument. Likewise, there's a lot of science to support their use in medicinal properties. Mm-hmm. Um, but going back to your question in regards to it, how can people differentiate what foods are potential triggers for them, the only way that I've found to be good enough, um, if they don't have like a physician that they can work with in regards to this, is going to be an elimination of protocol and then a reintroduction of different foods that they think are triggers. Because obviously, we know that when we eat a large bowl of uh, salad, for example, we don't want a certain sa- a certain vegetable in there because we know it kind of triggers um, something in our body. We feel like it has an off taste, uh, off putting taste, or it causes stomach pain. For some people, that might be onion. For some people, that might be uh, garlic, and it could be because they can they're part of FODMAPs, uh, fructo oligodisaccharides, and mono. Oh man, I forgot the the rest the rest of that. But essentially, carbohydrates that the the gut microbiome interacts with can cause a lot of water retention in the gut. And then you start to have symptoms of IBS or IBD. And those are the foods that you'll only know if they're really triggers, if you eliminate them from your diet and reintroduce them one by one. 
Now, an elimination protocol, you don't have to be as drastic as doing a carnivore diet. You can go towards like a vertical diet approach, which in my opinion, I think works pretty well for most power lifters. And then see what foods, when you re reintroduce them into your diet, cause symptoms to develop. And then the symptoms can be something as simple as malaise, or it can be performance dropping, like you don't pull as much when you eat um, this certain food around a pre-training meal. It can be brain fog. It can be so many different uh, factors. A lot of people seem to have skin issues when it comes to uh, these food triggers. And what I've come to understand from that is not that the foods are causing skin issues themselves, but when the immune system recognizes the food and the molecules it contains as some kind of antigen, like for example, reflectin, it starts to signal towards the uh, Th1 immune response pathway. And so they start getting symptoms of like psoriasis and eczema. Mm -hmm. um, Th1 is just a subset of T cells uh, for people listening that are associated with autoimmune conditions. And that is a, that's the problem with having this discussion about food triggers. It's like, it's not just immune mediated. You can have um, atopic diseases without any immune change, without any immune signaling effect. For some reason, for some people, it occurs. And it's characterized in the literature to occur for a lot of people. And that's what makes it difficult to have an accurate diagnosis with this stuff. Mm -hmm. The only way you can do it is through trial, experimentation. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for that, man. That's really, I think this is going to help a ton of people. And it's, it's, you know, I've gone through this process personally. I don't know when you, you started this process specifically with, you know, um, you know, having a pretty much exclusively whole food diet and, and trying to, you know, enrich your diet with foods that, you know, you respond well to and avoid, avoid others. But I just look back at like old pictures, old YouTube videos, and I see just how bloated I was or the quality of my skin. And it's just, it's so obvious. Like, you know, a lot of, you know, you, you deal with it every day. You've gotten into arguments with people on, on Instagram about a whole host of nutritional things, as have I, where, you know, people are still defending like the, you know, like if it fits your macros and like you yeah. know, just body composition and macro nutrient breakdown is really the, the big rocks and all that matters. Um, and it's just so obvious that in, in my situation, as well as others that I've seen where it's like, you can just see in someone's face how healthy they are, right? Like I, I look at a lot of people that I follow on Instagram and they're, you know, 25-year-old women with just like moon face and acne. And it's just like, this is not, this should not be the case. This is not what you should look like as a, you know, healthy individual who's active every day. It's not like you're sitting on your couch doing nothing. It's like, there's clearly some sort of disconnect with the huge aspect of your life that's outside of, your physical fitness that is playing a role on, on, you know, what's going on internally and it's, and it's giving a presentation outwardly. Um, and I think a lot of people are not presented with a lot of this information because there's a lot of politiza politiza politization of the science. And like what you said before, a, a discrediting of the people who do experience issues with certain things just because other people are genetically capable of dealing with whatever foods that might be immune triggers for, for other people. Yeah. The, I like that you mentioned the genetics involved in this because it is very true. A lot of it is dictated by genetics in specific, the HLA gene, human leukocyte antigen. So if anybody's curious about this, there are certain alleles, versions of that gene, HLA gene, that affect people. It's about 25% of the population 
um, are hyper responders to certain antigen. And so if they're exposed to those antigens in foods, they'll have a negative response, where, whereas other people would not. And it's quick to dismiss these people because you don't see it elevated in a blood test. It's not like white blood cell markers go up. It's not like you can tell CRP is going up. Instead, what tends to happen is the specific cytokine that gets triggered is IL-2, interleukin-2. And unless you're testing for that in the local tissue where the antigen response occurs, you're never going to find it. But the effect downstream is, well, now the immune system is activated and secondary signaling. One more time. I said, and it becomes systemic. Exactly. Through secondary signals. And so it's only occurring inside of cells. That's where secondary signaling with metabolites occur in the first place. Um, it's only diagnosable, for example, if that's the right way to go about it through in vitro analysis. And you're not going to do that when you go to your doctor. They're going to have to just look at your blood tests and assess from there based off of symptomology. But yeah, it's very, uh, it's hard to get an accurate diagnosis with this. So if you're not looking well, if you have bad skin issues, if you have acne, consistent acne in certain areas, back acne is one that I've seen with a lot of people with food triggers. Um, and then you're having non-specific symptoms, like it's widespread, it's multiple things at, at once. It's more than likely that these foods are affecting you and you're just not a good responder to them. There's nothing wrong with that, but it's up to you if you want to take it out or keep it in your diet. Yeah. And it's unfortunate for a lot of people because, you know, time and money are such limiting factors for, for cleaning things up. Um, right. Like we could talk about, and, and obviously there are, t I'm not making excuses for a lot of people. I think a lot of people can, can do better, um, you know, with, without any major barriers, but of course, you know, a lot of people will, will be, uh, creatures of, of convenience with, eating, you know, a protein bar or, a, you know, yeah. a fair life, or they'll go get a, a Chipotle bowl or whatever it is, because that's easier than preparing or cooking your own food. And, you know, while there are certainly, you know, uh, like hacks, or, um, you know, options for eating whole foods for cheap, as we know, there are a lot of, you know, whole food options that are just like grocery store quality that are also going to give a lot of people problems, you know, it could be the dairy, it could be the non organic, you know, vegetables or fruits that also have their, their set of issues. So it's, it's kind of unfortunate that a lot of people either like financially are kind of priced out of being able to take full control of their health, or just like the the um, educational resources or what's exposed to the average person is just such a small sliver of what they actually need to know. Yeah, that is the thing that I went through personally. I mean, I used to follow these big name uh, powerlifting pages because I'd done powerlifting. That's that was one of my focuses for a good three years of my life. So I got to watching Lane Norton videos. I got to watching Dr. Nadalski talk about calories in, calories out. Your metabolism is not broken. I went through that entire phase, and then I went deeper into the biomedical research and realized, holy shit, there's so much that you just don't hear about on Instagram and social media that actually validates a lot of these things. And unless you're open to hearing about it in the first place, it's just not gonna. It's not going to fly with most people because they're so conditioned from the authorities around this topic. Um, like with the organic stuff, I'm sure people that listen would probably a percentage of your audience would assume, yeah, there's really no difference between organic food and non-organic food in terms of nutrients. They'd be right in terms of toxicities, more or less correct. But there are other things involved with, for example, plant metabolites that might be higher in uh foods that are grown in a conventional way versus non-organic that have never been analyzed or talked about before. I've never seen being discussed, for example, on social media. 
that might be one of the consequences as to why people do better with organic food versus non or conventional grown food. There are a lot of things that you just don't hear about because the complexities run very deep um, that do validate a lot of what these people experience that discuss this stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And one of the things that frustrates me, and we're going to get into the, the, this is the golden topic for the video because everyone wants to hear about seed oils All right. and the poofas. And I know that this is your, this is your, you know, your Instagram magnum opus. So we're definitely going to touch on this, but the thing that bothers me a ton is like a lot of the big, and this is, this is how it goes with every field, right? It's like the people who are very, um, who are incredibly intelligent and understand a lot of the minutiae are usually not the people who are charismatic and can be the um, conveyors or the communicators of science, right? It's usually a different type of person fits that role. And with stuff like fitness and nutrition, not only is that archetype someone who's maybe a bit more charismatic, a bit more opinionated, you know, intelligent, but not the cream of the crop, but then also with just these fields, right? They're not necessarily the fields that the, the absolute one percent point zero five percent go into right and with what the curricula are for kinesiology majors exercise science majors nutrition majors it's so surface level that the for example when you talk when you get into talking about seed oils and poofas the the mechanisms are not even known in a lot of these people's minds right so it's like they're speaking from a point of a base level curriculum, and then they're looking at a study that's analyzing, you know, like that that famous canola oil study that every, you know, pro seed oil person loves to cite where they're like, oh, look, the LDL came down, so it's clearly better for your heart. It's like they look at a study that they don't really have any sort of prior education with any of the chemistry behind it or the like pathophysiology behind it. And then they just like, they read the summary and they're like, oh, okay, like this says this. And they, because they don't have the background, they aren't able to question the A precedes B, like the, the, the conclusion that's drawn from the premises. They don't have the ability to question and be like, wait, there might be more to it than what you're maybe falsely concluding from this. I like that you, that you mentioned in specific with premises, like yeah, you have to have the right premises to get the right predictive value in the first place. If what your premise is, is that LDL causes heart disease then your predictions should be spot on for all cases. We know that's not the case. We know that there's a lot involved with this, like LDL receptors, the lipoprotein composition, the lipid composition, which relates to PUFAs, um, the general health of the person. Are they insulin resistant, pre-diabetic, and don't even know it? Um, all of that affects the causality here in a way that it's not like a one effect, one outcome kind of event. There's multiple things playing at play here and if your premise is this one thing is what causes the other you have you have to have the background understanding in the first place and just to give credit where credit's due i'm sure a lot of these new uh, nutrition majors and people that have done exercise kinesiology they still have to do these core requirements like chemistry one chem two orgo one if they have to orgo two but it might not have looked as important to them as it actually is and they've completely forgotten about it when the answers lie in those more fundamental sciences because that's where we draw all the other sciences from. Mm -hmm. It's the the chemistry, the math, and the molecular biology, essentially. And when we talk about mechanisms, a lot of people love to discuss that, well, mechanisms don't matter in the, the event of outcomes, clinical outcomes. And that's completely inaccurate because if you don't know the mechanism behind an outcome, 
it's a black box event. That is not what you want in clinical translational medicine. You want to know exactly what's happening, why people are getting better, why people are getting worse, so that you can apply the right technique or pharmaceutical drug or pharmacological intervention to actually get the exact outcome you want. Without the correct premise and predictive value, you lose everything in medicine. And the, and the discrediting of the mechanisms is always wild to me because when we conduct experiments, they are imperfect or there are confounding variables or there are things that preceded the outcome that we might not fully understand because we couldn't control for everything in the experiment. So for me, it's like, you know, I, I'm on your side on like the PUFA topic, for example, but even if I were on the fence, right, the thing that, that like bugs me almost is like, if we looked at it from the approach of telling people to just eat a whole food diet, they would never encounter a seed oil because they're not in yeah, nature. Yeah. You wouldn't just be eating, you know, soy natural soybean oil or canola oil, right? So it's like, even if I were on the fence, the way that I look at it is if the mechanisms are showing something and maybe the clinical data doesn't show anything, right? Like I'm, you know, maybe the clinical data has, has nothing to convince me that I should avoid these foods, but the mechanisms are telling me something. I could say, well, okay. I know that at the at the very minimum I'm going to be, you know, net neutral from just eating this whole food diet. And in the event that 10 years down the road the clinical data corroborates the mechanisms, then look what I did. I just saved myself however many years of my life. But there was no negative, right? It's not I'm not encouraging you to take a a medication or a drug that has some sort of, you know, um you know, potential unknown downstream consequences by giving you the seed oil pill. I'm just telling you to avoid something and eat a diet that is, if you frame it as whole food diet, right? Like nobody is going to question yeah. the, the validity and the, and the benefits of something like that. Yeah. Right. Least, so it's, just, it's very silly to me. At least we have some corroboration there of the more mainstream field is yeah, the whole food diet is clearly the best approach towards um, maximizing your health. And there's no doubt about that, whether it's a whole food Mediterranean, whole food, vegan, you'll still see benefits with most of these um, rather new kinds of diets, because they're incorporating more nutritiously available food that also has uh, less triggers, less antigens, less toxicants, less contaminants than you find in processed foods. Um, it, at least you have that but yeah, the mechanism stuff really, in my opinion, I, it, because I focus so much in the molecular sciences, I see it all the time. Everybody wants to know the mechanism behind how something happens. If physicists didn't know how electron transfer works in the first place, they wouldn't be able to advance the field of material sciences. Like you have to know these things to actually understand what's happening with the macro level of events. Yeah. All right. Let's, let's get into it then. Because okay. I, like I said... So many people are asking, why are seed oils and PUFAs bad? Why should people avoid them? Even if your goal is performance, why are they unhealthy? All right. So let's start off with the devil's advocate. Seed oils drop LDL. Seed oils improve metabolism. Seed oils increase fat oxidation. Seed oils can improve weight loss. Seed oils also improve clinical outcomes in most cases. Um, if you look at 12 weeks or whatever, the marker of the outcome is like inflammation markers. All of that is true. It is undoubtedly true. But why does it happen like that in the first place? Well, let's look at LDL. Seed oils tend to reduce transcripts, mRNA transcripts of lipid associated uh, genes. And so you get reduced cholesterol um, delivery, you get reduced LDL in circulation, 
and then you also get reduced LDL uptake by the LDL, LDL receptor. Um, so that all affects the outcomes. It can be a positive outcome in the short term. We don't know too much about a couple dozen years down the road. Um, seed oils help with fat oxidation. Absolutely. You need to have a permeable membrane in the first place to actually get those fats inside of your cells so that they can go to mitochondria and be burned. Seed oils, what else? Uh, seed oils improve uh, um, weight loss. It's very true. Seed oils can be something that do does improve fat oxidation once again. And as a part of whatever caloric intake somebody has, um, the weight loss might be a little bit better for people that are consuming seed oils. The problem doesn't really translate to seed oils themselves, but how much you're taking in and then in relation to what else you're doing with your life. So I'm somebody that maintains at maximum, I am not going above 10 grams of polyunsaturated fatty acid in my food. And how I'm getting that is mostly through animal products in the first place, because it's impossible not to get enough PUFAs in the current diet that most people eat. Even if you're going with the whole foods vegan diet, you're still getting PUFA. Um, carnivore diet, you're still getting PUFA. There's no way around it. Yeah, and because of eggs, you're getting PUFA. Even if it's grass-fed, you're getting PUFA. Because of that, you are not needing any more PUFA. It's already present in your diet past the amount that you would need um, before it's clinically called a deficiency, where you just don't have any more polyunsaturated fatty acids in your tissue. The body will start to make meat acid instead, which is an omega-9 fatty acid to counteract the loss of PUFAs. So they're still a part of physiology. You need PUFAs for production of arachidonic acid so you can build muscle. You need PUFAs for the myelin sheath that's part of the brain. But the amount that people are consuming as part of a Western diet far exceeds the 10 gram amount that I try to maintain an absolute limit with. You don't need more than two or three grams. It doesn't cause a clinical deficiency um, at two or three grams. You need a little bit less to even cause a clinical deficiency. So 10 grams is being... Is, uh, is being generous with this, but people are consuming 20 grams, 30 grams, maybe even a little bit more, 40 grams, depending on what oils they cook with. And that's where it becomes an issue because the cells are taking up this polyunsaturated fatty acid. It's becoming part of the membrane of the cells, becoming part of the membrane of the mitochondria. And where there's metabolism, there's always going to be oxidants involved. And then what tends to happen because PUFAs themselves have um, pi bonds that are really reactive, easy to react with oxygen species, aka reactive oxygen species, you'll have these met metabolites being made like peroxynitrate, um, peroxyl radicals that then affect the cells in really negative way. In fact, you're making some of the same metabolites that you get from smoking cigarettes that cause cancer. If you have this occur for a long enough period of time, it will inevitably be an influence on uh, disease prognosis. We know this is the case because quite literally people with uh, cancer, various types of cancers, you can literally um, get like a, a meter that detects aldehydes from polyunsaturated fatty acid metabolism. And you'll see that the readings are sky high for people with cancer. Uh, there's mice that you can give um, carcinogen, you can cause carcinogenesis with these aldehydic byproducts that are part of PUFA metabolism. In fact, a whole field of oncology relates to these um, endogenous aldehydes that our body produces because they're the mechanisms by which DNA mutagenesis occurs. The mechanism by which DNA mutagenesis occurs is the same mechanism that they look to target and protect our cells from. So these mechanisms clearly matter in the sense of chemotherapy, for example. There's no doubt in my mind 
there's no doubt in the literature, there's no doubt in the medical sciences that polyunsaturated fatty acid past a certain amount for a long duration of time does contribute to various conditions. And they're part of the pathophysiology, even if you don't have a clinical outcome directly that says, well, we have this group that took 20 grams of PUFA, 12 weeks later, nothing happens. So clearly PUFA are not involved in this process. That is not necessarily the case. It's not like a one-to-one relation. There's a and lot of is, other variables involved. And and what I was going to say to that is like, this is an, an issue of chronic disease, right? We're talking about people being exposed to this from childhood when their parents are taking the McDonald's all the way into their 30s, right? Like this is an issue of chronic health where people are developing these diseases in early 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s. It's like this is a time scale that goes beyond a lot of the limitations of any study that you can conduct to have any sort of conclusion, you know, conclusive results. What what they would say to that, being the devil's advocate for these people, is that well, you can do retrospective analysis where you look back in time at a group of people and you try to do multivariate analysis in return. So after you look at the group of people, isolate the variables, age, sex, okay, PUFA intake. And what you see is most of the time, there's a reduction in events like cardiovascular events, mortality. But then there's other studies that suggest the opposite. The reason why there's so much conflicting information is because these multivariate tools aren't just going to denote causality here. And it's very tough to provide a causal relation between these things. And you can provide correlates in general, but they're all they're all going to be either leaning one way or the other, depending on how you do the analysis, depending on your patient group, are they healthy? Otherwise, were they healthy people most of the time or do they have chronic conditions? Because that could influence it. It's like just because a study says this about PUFAs or that about PUFA means very little. You have to know how they went about the analysis. You have to know about the population they chose and why they chose that population. You have to know about the chemistry behind what they're assessing. Are they assessing markers like CRP that don't really relate to PUFA? Are they assessing eicosanoid markers, which are direct metabolites of PUFA? Hard to say. And in that case, that's what makes all of this so difficult for the average person to uh, make sense of because you have people on one camp and people on the other that provide appropriate evidence that is also correct. Most of the time it is correct, but it's not containing the bigger picture here. And it's not making sense of the paradoxes between these two camps that obviously need to be explained with more understanding of chemistry and mathematics. It's one of the reasons why I decided to do those two degrees. Yeah. Thank you, dude. Thank you so much for explaining this the way that you did, because I think that a lot of, like we said earlier, it's like people will automatically assume that if you're coming on here to talk about the the dangers or risks of eating excessive PUFAs, which I don't even know if we we made the explicit clarification. PUFAs are polyunsaturated fatty acids. So, you know, stuff that's in, you know, soybean oil, um, it's, you know, an omega-6 fatty acid, right, for people who are listening who maybe aren't familiar. But a lot of people who will hear that someone's going to be talking about this, they'll immediately discredit because they think they're being, you know, uh, fanatical about it. Right. So I appreciate you both giving like the devil's advocate position and then talking us through a very realistic reason for avoiding as well as what the the outcomes are. Um, and it's like you said, it's the, the reason I wanted to have you on here, like I said, was that you're communicating the, the middle ground between the two camps who are going to speak the loudest. Right. You're going to have your Nadalskis, you're going to have your Lane Nortons who are going to be 
rah, rah, rah. It's okay to eat your Pop-Tarts. It's okay to eat your seed oils. Pedro's a fucking idiot. All these guys are idiots. Look at, look at Dr. Saladino. He's a moron, like whatever, like ignore everything he says. Um, and then you have the people on, on that camp who are like, vegetables are bad. You know, poofas are terrible. Eat raw liver, eat, you know, raw testicles, whatever. Right. So it's just like, People can only be exposed to the polar opposites because those are the easiest communicated thoughts. The extremes are very simple to get across, mm-hmm. right? Because it's a very specific side and then you block out the rest. But a lot of times the opinions that people like you hold or the way that you've kind of sifted through the information, there's so much noise to make sense of. And it's hard to communicate that to the average person. Yeah, the noise is what loses people in the first place because you you can only explain the noise with things that require higher in-depth analysis. Um, like the first thing that comes to mind for some reason, even though it's not used in medical research, is Fourier analysis. How many people are going to want to listen to you discuss Fourier analysis of noise and signal transduction? I loved I loved Fourier analysis, man. My systems and control class was probably one of my favorite classes I took in undergrad. I, I, yeah, engineers in general do a lot more than most people. And, and that's the thing, yeah. though. It's like, nobody's going to want to listen to you discuss this how exactly is the data made sense of um which is where you lose people i i grow my audience by doing simpler posts nobody likes those crazy in-depth science posts like the antioxidant posts i made on thermochemical reasons why you should be concerned with antioxidants nobody really cared about that and then the one i made on lion's mane why it's good for brain lion mane grown brain everybody loved that (laughs) Lion main brain big. You know what's hilarious about your antioxidant post is that so I have a I have a group chat of guys that I'm uh we're all really, really good friends. Most of them are, are up in uh in Pennsylvania. One of them's in Canada, one one of them's in California. I'm sure some of them are gonna be listening to this. But they sent your antioxidant post in the group and they go, Sean, please explain this to me like I'm retarded. Like please just tell me what Pedro is saying right now because yeah. I don't understand any of it. Yeah. And I, I had to, you know, break it down, ba- down, holy shit, I can't speak, break it down simply for them. But I mean, that's, and they're, and they're smart guys, right? But they just don't have a formal education in bio or chemistry. So a lot of the terminology or a lot of the mechanisms that you drew out of, you know, DNA being um, damaged, yeah. it's just not, it's just not communicable to people. Yeah. Right. So that's, that's, that's the, the tough part. And I don't know what the the solution is right because the I, I guess i do know what the solution is but it's easy to hijack the solution right because the solution really is the right people just spoon feeding the right information to people who can't understand right but if you're ever in a position of power where you can spoon feed and people are just meant to say okay let me sit back and be impressionable and these are the experts we know that in every circumstance that people who shouldn't be in those positions of power are the ones who are in those positions of power and it's manipulative. So it's, it's such a tough problem to solve that I don't know what, how we end up solving it. Yeah. Yeah. I'm somebody that also feels very, uh, anti authoritarian in the sense that I don't want people to listen to me because I'm doing so many different degrees and I look at the really molecular science side of things I just want people to think about things in a different way. Like most of the people that ask me questions about, for example, how to improve their health, how to improve their physique, how to improve mitochondrial health, et cetera. I always say, well, think about it from a first principles perspective. How would you go about it in the first place? Because there's so many methods to going about improving these things. 
but the principles are what matter. And so if I could teach people how to think about um, these biological events in a more pragmatic, rooted, foundational sense, I think that's going to help because then they can translate their thoughts in a different way. It might be less robust, but it's still enough that the philosophy grants a more correct answer for them. It's like with training, there's so many different methods to improve your big three, but the principle behind it is always going to be doing a little bit more than you did before or progressive overload, overload for lack of a better term here, because that's overused as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the getting people to think is, is the, that's the thing. It's like, you're, you're absolutely right, but it's just, maybe I'm too cynical. Like I just, I just don't, I, I think we're going in the exact opposite direction and it was already oh, yeah. difficult before we were going in that opposite direction. So it's like, we can't stop a moving train. It feels like. Unfortunately. It, it's, it's going to have to crash sooner or later and it's going to continue to get worse before it yeah. gets better. Um, clearly because everybody's dealing with something nowadays. You've got people dealing with some, any kind of condition that they think is normal because everybody else goes through it when it's not. Yeah. Yeah. I was talking to my mom yesterday and, um, you know, she told me she was like, Oh, like, and my mom for everybody, cause nobody's going to be familiar unless I have like a family member or close friend listening to this. But my mom is, is tiny. She's like five foot one, maybe like 115 pounds. Like she's always been a twig her entire life. And she had blood work done recently. And she's like, Oh, like I have, and she's had a host of other issues because she was a smoker and all this sort of stuff. But she's like, Oh, like I have high cholesterol and I've never had this issue in my life before. And I'm like, mom, like you have been not just vegetarian for the past decade of your life, but you have been the vegetarian eating, you know, morning star fake, like chicken patties and like craft singles and like all this sort of stuff. It's like, it is no wonder that you don't have a command of your health. And I was telling her, you know, and she, and people who are older kind of have this outlook all the time where they're just like, you know, they tell you like, Oh, wait till you get to my age or getting old is hard. Or like, there's no point anymore in trying to like, you know, take control of my health. Cause like I've already, I'm already, you know, I'm already this old. And it's just like, you could realistically feel like you're 25 till you're 55. If you actually, you know, took care of the right things. And, you know, that's what I, I hope to see people doing. And I think the, the, the public sentiment is kind of waking up a bit. Like I, I get a ton of DMS all the time, not just from people who already were motivated to take control of this, but just people who were curious enough for a moment to be like, Oh, like this yeah. actually seems like it's something that I should look into or start to give more credence to. And that's the, those are the people that are so important to influence, not the ones who already, you know, have the intrinsic willpower to be like, you know, they, they're already hard workers. They study hard. They train hard. Like as soon as you show them something like this, they're going to be like, fuck it, I'll get on it right now. And I'll, and I'll dial in that variable, right? It's the ones who, who aren't that way. The ones who are, are, um, you know, uh, moldable in this situation because they just have that curiosity and they feel like they're lost at some point, or they feel like they're struggling with something. Um, so yeah, I mean, with with that, now that we've talked about a lot of the, I guess, like the the science behind this and as well as a more philosophical um, pondering is like, I get asked by people all the time, and this is a, a practical piece of this podcast is like, I get asked, you know, I, I'm pretty clean with my diet in terms of like tracking macros, I try to eat, you know, reasonably healthy, but like, what, what steps can I take to really 
move toward mm-hmm. dietarily honing in my health and not just looking at it from the performance perspective of like, okay, I need to eat 600 carbs today. It's how can I actually shape my diet now to improve my health? So like if you, you know, and this is for people who, you know, don't have like an unlimited budget, like it would be great if everyone could go fill a meat freezer with grass fed meat and organ meats and they could buy all organic fruit and they could buy raw dairy and they could have, you know, all these, you know, vegetables that they know sit well with them. It's like, what would be the big, the big rocks of improving your diet that you would suggest to someone who already does care about their health, but has maybe been in that, you know, if it fits your macros train of thought for too long. I would say to make it as simple as possible. And then I'll go a little bit deeper into the intricacies that I think matter. If people just want to get a good start on this, I think really jumping on the vertical diet is a great first, first step because a lot of the principles align with what I think are correct as well. Um, It makes it simple because of the way it's laid out. It makes it simple to shopping and it makes it simple to maintain the macronutrient um, composition that most people need to have um, for sports like powerlifting and bodybuilding. But then let's say that somebody already did the vertical diet and they want to dial in their health a little bit more. What would they want or what should they do to get their health as maximized as possible? I definitely think, the types of protein matter a lot. If you're consuming, for example, soy protein in certain shakes that you might not even know, or if you're consuming um, protein bars that have soy protein, you want to get that out of your your diet in general. There's a lot of reasons for that. Um, I don't want to go too deep into the science, but I, I think the biggest one is just the inflammatory response some people can gain from soy protein. Yet all kinds of plant proteins that are soy, wheat, barley, rye, out of your diet altogether. You're going to do better with maintaining um, more animal-based protein intake. If you're not vegan, if you're vegan listening to this, I'm sorry, but I'm not going to go there. And uh, with the protein intake, mostly I would choose beef. Beef is going to be the big one. It's the one that contains more creatine, support for performance and so on. And then less often uh, shellfish and seafood. Um, So I would choose things like salmon. I would choose things like tuna, even though it does have a higher mercury content. I prefer tuna over something like swordfish and uh, a lot of oysters. I eat oysters often, um, crab, diversify your protein intake with bovine and sea sources of protein. That's going to make a big difference in your brain health, uh, provide enough micronutrients and vitamins that you need to perform optimally that your muscles require to perform metabolism in the first place. It's not just macros coming in. It's, well, do you have enough niacin coming in so that you can burn the glucose effectively in the mitochondria of the, the muscle fibers. Um, so that's the big one protein. Then I would definitely consider some source of easy, easily digestible carbohydrates and maintain three of those as the most common carbohydrates you go to for your diet. For me, it's Japanese sweet potato, white rice, and then I guess the only other one that I choose, even though it has a lot more fiber, is quinoa. I like quinoa. Most people will not do good with quinoa, I'm assuming, but Sweet, Japanese sweet potato and white rice, I tend to orient them in between training sessions. When days I'm most active, days I'm walking a lot in school, I will have those carbohydrates then um, based off my own meal plan. So follow an approach that works for you. But then quinoa, I will have on days that I'm not as active because I don't need a simple starch coming in quickly um, for training sessions when I'm just sitting down reading a book or doing note-taking for school. It's like you don't need that really quick glycemic spike. So that's how I would think about carbohydrate intake. And then 
add in some citrus and berries as your most prominent fruit intake um, and exotic fruits as well, because you're going to get some trace minerals like selenium, molybdenum, et cetera, that are important for uh, detoxification purposes in the liver and the kidneys. It's like these things are necessary for your body to actually get rid of the environmental toxins that exist in the first place. Um, and I prefer citrus and berries because they have a lower glycemic index. They have secondary metabolites that block things like estrogen. And so it improves training outcome. I feel really good with citrus fruits in general. Like the the mind change is night and day. If I don't have a couple of limes or grapefruits throughout my day for a week or so, I feel like I'm a little bit less, um, I guess the right word is I'm more depressed, even though it's not depression in a sense, it's just my mood is less and I'm not as vigorous yeah. in my yeah. life. Um, you feel dampened. Exactly. The way that I yeah. describe it. Yeah. Yeah, I really do think the anti-estrogenic effect of a lot of these foods play a role in me particularly. Um, and then the only other thing is getting at least a source of food that's an ab abundant source of micronutrients, whether that be liver, um, oysters, or some other food that contains a lot of micronutrients per gram. Because again, it's not like your metabolism just runs with macros. They need those minerals involved with enzymes and digestive processes to actually make use of the macros in the first place. And the better that is, the better your performance and your health is going to be. Would eggs, eggs also fall into that category yeah. then? Yeah. Yeah. Cause I imagine I, I don't, I actually have not purchased oysters. Like I've never casually eaten oysters. I don't, are they expensive or are they fairly? They're pretty cheap. cheap. If you get wild caught, um, what is, what, what are they called? Rockies. Um, it's yeah. like a dollar and 30 cents per oyster okay that's not yeah that's not terrible but i imagine a lot of listeners are probably not going to be quick to eat you know yeah. liver raw i mean i've eaten it it's it's not pleasant mm. um and then cooking it just requires a lot of care to, to get rid of that metallic liver taste mm. um so just like getting good eggs can be a, a good source of micronutrients as well I, yeah i agree the vince deronda approach where he's like taking um, 48 eggs for a deca cycle like a supposed deca cycle i mean it works <laughs> it works man if i eat more eggs i just feel a lot better with training libido etc there's something to that and i have a feeling it relates to the cholesterol being diverted into production of dhea and then tea and so on um but if you eat like 12 eggs to 24 eggs per week that's pretty good amount of micronutrients that you're getting yeah no i mean i eat Currently, I eat about half a dozen a day, so I'm going through a, a ton every week, and that's been – I mean, it's great. Like, I feel I feel fantastic. Like, all of my – and that's the thing. It's like I lived with so many things that I just thought were normal for so long. So, like, the physical outward symptoms of bloating and, and, and skin breakouts or whatever, right? But the stomach pains and the general malaise were things that were characteristic of every day for me. And I just assumed that this was just, oh, like I ate, so this is going to happen. Or, oh, I just had a lot of carbs, so this is going to happen. And it really was the food quality and the food choices that I was making. And I, it's it's incredible now that like I, I don't ever feel my stomach. Like I wouldn't, I wouldn't think that I have a stomach because I can't feel anything unless I eat something that perturbs it. Or energy-wise, like, you know, I'm productive now at all hours of the day. Whereas the time in my life when I formed the habit of only working at night really was because if it was during the day before I was planning on going to the gym, I felt useless. I felt very slow. 
I felt brain fog and you know, that's not, that's not the case for me anymore, which is, you know, fantastic. Yeah, that is very true. I was, I was that student most of my high school and early college years. I was the guy that didn't feel good first thing in the morning, procrastinated a lot. And I realized only after I started taking care of my health that the procrastination was a result of low grade inflammation. Yeah. And I, it makes me wonder like how much, how much better could I have done in school? How much more focused could I be? How much more quickly could I look at a problem or maybe not a problem, but how much more quickly could I look at material and absorb it and start to draw conclusions and start to draw connections between previous information that I had seen. It's like, I wonder how much sharper I would have been, you know, had I been taking care of my health in this way. Cause when I was, you know, I started taking care of my nutrition macro wise. Well, let me say this actually, when I first started taking care of my nutrition, I was like 14, 15 years old. And I was probably, I was more in line with the way I eat now back then. And then I was dissuaded from that whole foods way of eating because if it fits your macros became really popular. And then when I was in college, when things started to get busy, it's really easy to be like, oh, I'll, you know, I'll get uh, two grilled chicken sandwiches and a McDouble from McDonald's. And it's like, that fits in my macros. I can eat that. And then you just do that every day that you're busy and you're like, oh, well, I'm hitting my macros, so I should be fine. And it's like, no, like you're a mess internally and you don't even realize it. That is the, the, the key statement. You don't even realize it until you start trying to incorporate healthier habits. And then you're able to contrast by looking back how shitty you actually felt. It's, the, it's never been wrong, in my opinion, with people's experiences. Yeah. Yeah. And the, so the final thing I want to ask you about practical advice for people is like, you know, like we said before, with unlimited funds, with unlimited time, there's probably a problem that you could find in every aspect of your life that you could bulletproof in some way and eliminate that threat. But a lot of people have limited time. They have limited money. So when I think of stuff like toothpaste, shower filters, drinking water filters, of all topics like that, what is what is worth people spending their money on to improve? And what are things that like you're more like, well, it's a luxury. If you can afford to do it and you want to, go ahead. But like these are really the things that are more bang for your buck. Awesome. If I had to state it as one very important thing, the most important, it would be by far filtering your water. Your water would come first. Food, for example, you can go for conventional sources of beef if you want, if it's cheaper, if it's more um, affordable for you. It's not like it's going to cause that big a difference. But when it comes to water and how contaminated water supply all over the United States is, it is essentially the number one thing um, I think people should worry about is filtering your water. Reverse osmosis works best. Gravity filters work pretty well. And you want it to be NSF certified to make sure that it's actually uh, filtering the things that it's supposed to filter. It's without a doubt clear that all water in the United States is contaminated with some kind of uh, chemical constituent that is negative for our health. I mean, even working in chemistry labs, when we're working with these horrible chemicals that we wear double gloves for, or we make sure it doesn't touch our skin because it can be carcinogenic. There's always traces that are left over in test tubes, for example, or in flasks that you wash down the drain. And what you're hoping for is the people that work in the chemical engineering side of things and industry is that the filters that they have through the materials that they use filter 99.9% .9 of those particulates that are really carcinogenic or mutagenic. 
but 0.01, let's grant that 0.01% gets through. Or raise that to the exponent of however many chemistry labs there are around the world. Now you're looking at a pretty decent amount of contamination that's eventually going to wind up in the water supply. And it's going to wind up at your sink and you're going to drink it, whether it's plastic bottles or um, tap water. And so I think filtering your water supply is extremely important. Yeah. Yeah, no, I appreciate you saying that. You know, I got I had gotten a gravity filter after we had this discussion. Man, it must be almost a year ago at this point. Um, and then for, you know, you could see this. A lot of people can't. But I just I drink Pellegrino every day pretty much exclusively. At, you know, I the luxury to be paying for it. Um, but I think a lot of people would definitely benefit, like you yeah. said, from a reverse osmosis or, or a gravity filter. Um, yeah, I'm, dude, this was, this has been great, man. I've really, I've really enjoyed this. And now I'm, now I'm just waiting for you to come back to Miami. It's going to be soon, bro. Without a doubt, spring break. I think I'm going to come there April. If you don't go flying somewhere to like Columbia or something. <laughs> well, it's funny you say that because my dad, so my dad does business in Columbia. Right. Um, he's, he's essentially like, uh, trying to be a middleman between these foreign investors to build commercial real estate in Columbia. And he's always here because the intermediate airport between New York and Columbia is Fort Lauderdale. So he's actually always back and forth, but don't worry, you will not be seeing me in Columbia anytime soon. <laughs> cool. So I'm coming in April and we'll definitely get a lifting session and we'll start talking Absolutely. about a uh, Bing Chilling. <laughs> I don't think I have anything else, man. This has been, this has been really helpful. And I think a lot of people listening to this will find it really informative. Um, Cause like we said, there's, there's, there's a lot of noise for people to sift through and there's a lot of talking heads just shouting on both sides saying this side is bullshit and this side is bullshit. So I hope the people that look to me in this podcast as a source of discernment of quality information that they will take the things that you're saying to heart and, and consider to make the, the positive health changes that we're looking to see people make. Great. Thanks for having me on as well, Sean. I appreciate you even listening to me and trusting me and I'm glad we could connect in the first place. No, dude, this has been great, man. Like I, you know, people listening, you know, might not know, but like when we, when you were here in, uh, when were you here? Was it late May? Yeah. Last, last year, late May. Yeah. It was last year, late May. And we're just like, we're, we're sitting down at that sushi place and there, there were just so many topics that we brought up when it came to education, when it came to lifting relationships, all this stuff. And there were just so many like parallels in the way that we thought about a lot of these things. And it's just really cool. I mean, I'm sure people listening to this can can um, relate, but it's like when you when you meet people who you just have this deeper connection to, it feels like you're on the same resonant frequency of how you approach problems in your life. It's like you're like you're my you're my boy. Yeah, that's my boy right there. This is a typical bro ship in Ohio, bro. <laughs> All right, brother. This has been amazing, man. Thank you so much for taking no problem, the time. I'll talk to All you right. later. See you in the gram. Yeah, we're going to do the outro here real quick. This was uh, episode 16 of the High Bar Podcast with Sean Noriega and Pedro do Amaral, Ohio's smartest scientist. <laughs> Don't spit out your coffee. <laughs> I'm sorry. I shouldn't have done that right while you were drinking. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Good.
Oh, thank you, man. All right. Thank you guys so much for listening. We hope that you enjoyed this one and we will see you on the next one. Take care.